Mestrecast, analytical chemistry software in a fast-changing world, with Santi Dominguez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to what I think is the second episode of our new Mestrelab podcast. So today I have with me uh, Dr. Gary Sherman. Um, many of you, if you are especially from the NMR community, may know Gary already. Uh, Gary is Senior Scientific Director at Mestrelab, and this is the last of a number of, I think, very interesting positions that relate to the subject that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, so, hi, Gary. How are you? Welcome to the welcome to the podcast series. Thank you very much. Yes, and thank you. And you know, of course, we. I think, from the audience perspective, we are here to to listen to what you have to tell us about the subject. You know, so I'll try to just mediate it a little bit and facilitate. But you know, the 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 spotlight is on you, and I'm very keen to to get your perspective on this subject because I know that is something you have been thinking about for a very long time and working on for a very long time. So maybe we can start there. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background and you know how how you came to be interested in automation. What what brings you to the point where we're at today? Sure, yes. So my background is really working in pharma. So for many years I worked within analytical chemistry groups within the pharma industry. So for a number of years at AstraZeneca and for a number of years at Eli Lilly. Uh, and that was always within the analytical chemistry group, doing NMR, doing LCMS. And I think that that led me very early on to an interest in automation. I, I mean, I kind of remember right at the beginning, not long after I'd started my first job, being asked to get involved with a process that involved, in this case, it was NMR data. It was carbon NMR spectra, from what I remember, and you had to compare them against a standard, and and then that was used for checking the compliance of a material. It was unbelievably tedious. I remember this. It's the kind of job you give to the new person, right, when they uh, they they start <laughs> off. I guess very early on, I was thinking to myself, then. Um, there has to be a better way to do this. There must be some things we can do to speed it up and and automate it. And I think from right back then that that interest started. And of course, you know, this kind of problem is not uncommon, right? It's it's maybe a standard problem that you find within analytical chemistry. So yeah, I mean, I guess I made the decision to teach myself how to use the tools, how to program, and how to to learn more about automation and how things within that worked because in the end I thought it was going to save me time that was my decision I mean there's there's an old adage I think that says give the tough job to the lazy man or or something along those lines and uh, because they'll find a good way to do it and I, I I somehow I feel that was me right I I figured it would be less effort in the long run to do things through automation Great. And yeah, I like that adage. I mean, I, in fact, I've spent my whole life trying to be the lazy man. I haven't quite succeeded, <laughs> but it's a continuous direction of, of travel. In fact, it's interesting because um, I've been watching the last few days a documentary about getting, I think it's something called like getting inside Bill Gates's brain or, or inside Bill's brain or something. And it, he talks all the time, and you can see that he's very much driven by optimization and doing difficult things in an easier and faster way. So time saving time is, I think, the 
the leitmotif for him. He's obviously quite a successful person and has achieved quite a lot. Uh, but I think it's, oh. it's obviously the leitmotif from what you say, Gary, for you as well in, the, in that context, as it is always for me. And, and maybe that is worth just laboring that point a little bit. So uh, just for clarity, you, you were not coming at this as a programmer. You were not coming at this as an automation engineer. You were actually an analytical chemist, right, who was having to do a job and looking to save time when doing that job. Yes, absolutely. The the interest came certainly initially out of necessity, right, of preserving my sanity and of, of being able to do more things by by automating them. But I guess, yes, over time, as you look at more of those processes, you perhaps you start to develop an interest in it for its own sake. You start to see similarities between processes. You perhaps find a good way you did something in one process that's applicable to something else and so on. So yeah, that interest develops over time for sure. But yes, certainly at the beginning, it was born out of necessity, I think. And uh, that that's how it started for me. And, and, and I think that's great because what I'm hoping at least is that the people listening to this podcast series, even though I'm very happy to have automation engineers or programmers listening to this, I'm hoping that the majority, because of the obviously the field that we work in, will be chemists or analytical chemists or chemists doing analytical work. Uh, so, so that makes it particularly relevant to that audience, of course. Um, we have a good example, which is that first project that you that you looked at automating, um, which is obviously the the lazy man, but also the smart man way of going about going about solving that problem, right? And, and you've been in pharma for a long time. Uh, I don't want to say how long, of course, that would be polite, but uh, you probably have come across, or, or let's say that every day there are other things that need to be done, Gary, and, and there is that decision where you basically look at them and think, is this something I should just do, or is this something I should develop an automated process yes. to do? And, you know, when you're doing that, what makes a process amenable to automation? How, how do you choose? How do you make that choice? Yeah, I think that's a good question because, of course, not everything is, right? Uh, or certainly not. some things are much more amenable than others, let, let's put it like that. And also there are you know, potentially much bigger savings for some processes than, than others in terms of automation. And obviously you want to do the ones that give you the biggest reward first but i think in general what i would say is where you have things that follow a a kind of recipe and that's a recipe that's repeated many many times those are the ones that tend to to fit best so if it's a very ad hoc process and it's not well defined that is maybe difficult to to automate but if you have a a clear set of things to follow perhaps if you also have a clear way of identifying things that need review and uh, a, a good way to fix those then those are the kind of processes that become very amenable to fitting into this uh, the idea of repeating the same analysis many times and then perhaps reviewing by exception if you you have that kind of pattern those are generally the ones that work best, I would say. Okay. And, you know, I, I like that, you know, or let's say I pick up a little bit on that reviewing by exception that you, you have just mentioned, but I'll come back to that if that's okay. 
sure. you know, maybe, maybe before we go there, can you, and th this is me throwing you on the spot a little bit. Do, do you have any kind of feel for how many automation projects you've been involved in during your career? Oh my it's, goodness, that's a that's a very question. ballpark. That's a very um, that's a very level. Is is it ten? Is it a hundred? What, what is it? It's 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 probably not a hundred, but it's certainly more than ten. Uh, okay. uh, and some of them obviously might be quite small and may just be suggestions about things. Others were, you know, potentially large and put things in place that ran for many years for thousands or even hundreds of thousands of samples. I don't know, 20, 30, that's that kind of order, something like that, I would, would be my guess. But then if I were to count them all out, maybe it would be even more. <laughs> yes. Uh, you would I, get I, to 100. Yeah. I think if you count the small ones, probably you're, you're not far off. Uh, so Gary, what would be the top tips? Uh, what makes an automation project successful? What, what should we have in mind? It, it, I'm an analytical chemist or I'm running a laboratory. Uh, I have identified some of these repetitive processes with, with common reporting that you have talked about. Uh, right. What do I really need to think about and what are the top tips that you will give me if I want to automate sure. those? Um, I, I mean, I think a very important one is, is to be realistic. Be realistic in, in what you can achieve because if you start out with the mindset that you want perfection, a hundred percent of the results correct, you're setting yourself up to fail, right? Manual processes don't achieve that either. And if we think that we're kidding ourselves, right? So I think a good place to start is to ask what is important for success? What level of correctness, if you like, am I willing to accept? And, you know, saying that's a hundred percent is is not realistic. You you have to set yourself realistic goals that you can achieve. Is it to accept the fact that automation won't do everything perfectly? Mm -hmm. So the project needs to have a good way of doing a, this review by exception that we already mentioned. You know, if you have this automation that runs a hundred thousand samples or whatever, but to fix the five percent that go wrong takes you longer than it did before because you have to find data and reopen it and transcribe it or whatever it is that you, you need to do to, to fix those problem ones. You know, you've made yourself a new barrier by, by doing that. So that ability to identify and fix the problem ones quickly, I think is also very, very important for, for success. <laughs> Maybe the other thing for me and know this is perhaps particularly true for processes in discovery chemistry where I spent many years perhaps slightly less so in development but I think it's probably still important is some degree of flexibility you know things do change and if you mm -hmm. hardwire into your automation a certain way of doing things maybe you can only use one instrument or you can only process things in a certain way that's going to lead you to problems down the line. So if you can design it in such a way that you can swap things in and out, change things when that's necessary, that is very much part of the success story as well, I think. 
And I think that's probably particularly the case uh, the earlier in the process that you are, right? So in discovery, especially flexibility is fundamental. I guess if if you are manufacturing a drug, probably then you can afford to be much more much more uh, formal and restricted in how you you design. (laughs) Exactly. And of course, sometimes you require that control, right? And as you say, particularly manufacturing, but don't create yourself problems by hardwiring things that later are going to be difficult to change. Don't build in rigidity that you don't need, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. You know, I, and, and I like the fact that you are so aligned with Elon Musk uh, when you talk about not aiming for perfection, you know, because this is uh, what you're referring to is very much the problem that we currently have with regulation, for example, around self-driving cars, right? We expect a self-driving car to never crash, you know, and, and this is because we're kidding ourselves thinking that cars driven by humans never crash, you know, yes. this is, it's obviously a ridiculous concept, you know, so. It uh, it, it is, yes, no, no, it, as you say, I, I remember very clearly actually once talking about automation of uh, ASV, of automated spectral structural verification. And in the talk about this, we were talking about things that it got wrong and, and so on. And I think someone uh, in the audience stood up and said, well, no, this needs to be done by a person because a person never makes a mistake and they always get it right. And I was kind of thinking, are you sure? You know, I can certainly think of things that I've got wrong over the years, and I'm sure others have as well. Uh, you know, maybe you don't make the same mistakes. That may be true, but people certainly make mistakes. So, yeah, I think you have to be realistic in those goals. Exactly. Well, absolutely. In fact, you know, I, I, I'm very much of the thinking that everybody makes mistakes apart from me. You know, but you, cannot, you cannot just have me doing everything. <laughs> and if you believe that, you believe anything. So, Gary, you talked a little bit about things going wrong. You just mentioned it now. So I'm also interested in that. What kind of things can go wrong? So you're taking on a, on a new automation project. It's important. It, it will add value. It's important to your organization. Uh, you have some top tips, flexibility, uh, don't aim for perfection. But where can you where can you get things wrong? Where, 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 where can you... Uh, fail basically yeah so uh, i mean i think perhaps the biggest one for me i've seen over the years is fix the process first right if you try to automate a bad process then that's just a recipe for failure right you're you're just going to automate the things that were already bad so i think the first thing is yeah don't don't just automate what's already there ask yourself if that process is correct and right and whether it's doing the, the things that you need yeah in so, fact, yeah, I, I, I guess from that viewpoint taking an automation project is 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 a good review point for what you're actually doing if, yes and even if you ended yeah. up automating you may get value just from that review right because you may realize something is being done stupidly for whatever reason yes. for a very long time uh, exactly and you know i've certainly been my experience that that has happened that you might ask so why do we do this this way oh uh we're not sure oh, we've always done it that way i'm not uh, we don't remember why we do it that way but then you know i i can even remember once in a particular analysis someone going through what they did and they had to enter a certain maybe it was a molecular weight or something like this in the in the process and when we went through it we realized that it was never used <laughs> never used at any point in the calculation that was there kind of thing and um yeah, so 
So it was there just to check that the operator was awake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, or maybe it had been used at some point. I don't know, but yeah. certainly in the in the process as it was then, it wasn't used, but it was still being requested and and entered by the by the user. And that's you know that's just one small example, but but yeah, I think definitely look at the process first and make sure that there's nothing broken or silly about that. Um, I, I mean the other. The other thing for me, I think where these things can fail is it's a good idea to keep these projects reasonably small in the in the first instance, at least. Maybe demonstrate some value and then look at spreading it out. You know, if you go into a project perhaps saying, right, we're going to automate this process globally for every site in the company and we're going to implement it all at the same time. We're going to have a switch over day when we go from the old process to the new process. Everyone is going to have to be happy with it. We're going to get the input from everyone into the process. You, you know, this is not a good way to set things up. In You can get stuck in discussions that go on forever and, and whereas you might argue that that's the most democratic way it may lead to a kind of stagnation yeah so the word of Churchill uh, democracy is a very imperfect system but it is the best one we have but not in this <laughs> but not in, not in this instance specifically yes. right? when, when you're going to get concrete things then democracies are not always the the best the best approach yeah, I mean, I mean, I think in my experience, the best thing is to make something, and I don't mean just a mock-up, I mean something that works, a proof of concept, then show it to people and get feedback and incorporate that. But if you try to get too much input at the beginning, I'm not sure that works. I think it's 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 better to let people criticise what you've done than it is to come up with things from scratch, if, if that makes makes sense. So I think, yeah, that that's certainly where something can go wrong if too many people are involved, um, particularly early on, that, that can slow things down, I feel. Uh, yeah, I mean, what else? I mean, yes, I guess related to the, the bad process thing, make sure that things aren't overly complex. If they are, that is going to complicate things. It might be worth making a few simplifying assumptions, even if they're not 100% valid because overall it makes things more efficient. I mean, obviously these are things to be judged on a case by case basis, but I think generally I've found in the past things can go wrong if you make things too complex. Yeah, and that maybe perhaps the final thing as well is to don't overpromise. You know, if go back to that kind of ASV kind of example, if you tell people it's gonna solve all their problems and get 100% of NMR spectra checked, perfectly they're just going to be disappointed when some of them aren't perfect right so there's a kind of management of expectation i mean there is this this kind of hype cycle i think i would call it where you overpromise. everyone believes that it's the most wonderful thing ever and then of course people find out that it's not and there's a tendency to say it's rubbish and it doesn't work at all. And then it oscillates backwards and forwards until the kind of true value is, is appreciated. So if you can try and damp that oscillation, if you like, by um, setting the right expectations and making sure that people aren't expecting this unachievable perfection, but 
that doesn't mean that it's not valuable, right? Just because it's not perfect doesn't mean that it doesn't have huge value. And I think, yeah, making sure that that's understood is important too. Sure, and you know, I like that phrase, the the hype cycle. And um, I once went on a hippie cycle, but I think I think <laughs> that something is slightly different. Um, okay, and maybe the other obvious question, you know, what processes we should automate, uh, Gary? Wh wh when do I look at a process uh, that I may want to automate, and I should decide not to do it? Yeah, and of course there are such examples, right? There, I'm sure there are plenty where you don't want to automate because it actually, the equation could flip the other way. It could actually take longer. So I think the kind of factors there is how many samples are there that are going through, how bespoke is the process, how we said before about having a kind of recipe that you could, you could follow. I, I mean, I guess it's, it's, to me, it's about calculating the sort of payback right the payback time um if you know if you can invest a few months of effort automating something and um, within let's say six months there'll be a positive benefit overall in terms of time and money and things like that then clearly that's one that you do whereas you know if you think it's going to be 10 years before you get any payback probably best to leave that one alone uh, and and leave it as it is but yeah i think that's the it's avoiding the ones that are very bespoke, ill-defined. I mean, to come back to what we said before, the, in those cases, maybe what you need to do is work on the process itself first, not mm -hmm. the automation, and, and proceed in that kind of way. But yeah, there's certainly ones that should be left alone and um, others that are no-brainers, if you like, in terms of what, what can be automated. Sure. Okay. And you know, let's so let's 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 get to maybe a concrete example, just just to give the audience a real feel for for what could, we could be talking about. Uh, so, if well, if I was to ask you, Gary, what is your favorite automation project, the one you're most proud of? Uh, what what would that be? That's a good question. So, I mean, as you can imagine, from working in pharma, there's many that I can't really talk about. Uh, yeah. from that. Um, thinking of ones that I can um that have been published or, or whatever that I can that I can mention I I think maybe the best one in terms of scope and how it perhaps were was a project uh, around I've mentioned ASB a couple of times that was what it was around and it was around verifying um NMR and LCMS uh spectra against structures of newly registered compounds so i the idea there was that every newly registered compound uh an automation check would be done to see if data existed first of all because that it could be a problem that it's, it didn't even exist or couldn't be found at least and um, maybe a reference was wrong or something like that and that it was consistent with the structure and i think particularly kind of proud of that one because you know potentially that's quite a sensitive subject right if you tell people they've done something wrong that's maybe not something that they want to hear so it has to be done kind of carefully and I think we designed it in such a way that it got everyone's buy-in and you know it, it it kind of wasn't seen as policing if you like it was 
a reminder perhaps to people that there was something they hadn't done or a, a check that they thought they'd done they hadn't been able to do. Yeah, I think that that was that. That's probably the one that I I feel hap- happiest about. I think, and and something that ran for many years as well. That ran for many years. Actually. Yes. That's what I was going to ask you because I do know a little bit about this project. And, you know, I mean, I, I guess it ran for many years. And do you have a feel for how many samples have been through it? It would be in the hundreds of thousands. Yes. It well, would be that kind of number. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, to- you're talking a lot of time safe for people that yeah, have it. otherwise got to look look at those spectra, right? Yes. And it's kind of, I guess, nice because it's a kind of a silent process as well. It just happened without people having to do anything at all which was maybe the best thing. So there was no extra effort that people had to had to do as part of that. Yeah, and I guess with automation, sometimes you save people a lot of times. Other times what can happen is that you are actually able to carry out a process that otherwise wouldn't happen, right? So I know that, I know that yes. there are companies that literally do not check because they don't have the the time, the FT time to actually check, for example, when they buy libraries, et cetera. They just hope. That, yes. that they are getting what the supplier tells them that they are getting. <laughs> yeah, I, that's, a, that's a very good point that sometimes you make the decision not to do something that actually might have value because you don't think it's possible to do yeah. it. Uh, and automation can make things possible. So yes, it's not just about automating what you're already doing to save time. It's sometimes about changing this kind of value equation, if you like, before I, I couldn't even conceive of doing this, even though I considered it valuable, it was too expensive, if you like, in terms of time and money to do. But now, actually, maybe I have a way of doing it. And and particularly if that's, you know, maybe the data already exists, perhaps, and you just weren't using it before. That's a particularly attractive one to do from that mm-hmm. kind of thing. If maybe the reason you didn't do it was you couldn't afford, you know, two FTEs to look at the data, but yeah. now something can just sit on a server chugging away, spitting out the answers and just warning people when there's something they need to review. That's a, a kind of perfect recipe, I think. Um, and, and there you may have, you may have obviously the, the time and the personnel to look at that two, three, 4% that are not what you expected, but you don't have to spend the time looking at the 100% that will make it impossible. You know, like, like exactly. hundreds of thousands of samples. Exactly. Kind of yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, great. Uh, Gary, so, I mean, uh, maybe there is there is another area I want to explore a little bit, uh, you know, and this is mainly because I don't think I've had a conversation in the last five years in which I haven't somehow mentioned artificial intelligence in one way or another. <laughs> right, so, yes, yes. You know, that's a big elephant in the room uh, when you talk about all these kinds of things, automation and how we run work processes. Uh, it's, a, it's a big buzzword, of course, but do you see it having an impact in automation? Uh, and, and maybe also related, do you think it will reduce the need for analytical chemistry? You know, so we will be able to do things in silico that today we're having to actually do in vitro or, or in reality. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, the simple answer is yes, right? You know, you, you only have to look things in the last few years, like in, in the area of science, things like AlphaFold or ChatGPT more recently. Um, I mean, things that perhaps we didn't even consider possible you know, almost routine now. So yes, I'm sure it will, it has and will continue to impact the, the way we, we do automation. Maybe, maybe the, the kind of analyses we can do, the accuracy of those analyses and so on. I, I mean, I think the only thing I would say though about that is that 
you know, the way AI generally works is that it learns from a very large pool of data. And that data has to have a, a kind of um, a ground truth, if you like, a category or a measurement that's been done another way that it's going to figure out its own way of doing. So uh, as well as AI perhaps being part of the algorithms for automation, you can kind of also maybe turn it on its head and say kind of more traditional automation, algorithmic-based automation perhaps, as actually perhaps a very good way of generating the input data that you might need to generate new AI models. Let's take an, an example of NMR Spectra, for example. Um, maybe you want to feed it some kind of data from NMR, but if you don't have some other analysis that told you uh, a measurement or a concentration or whether a structure is right or wrong or, or whatever it may be, how, how are you going to generate that training set of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of pieces of data? So I think there's a role, a kind of crossover between the two there as well. But for certain, I think you can see that once you have that training data, it's highly likely that new approaches will help with the accuracy of, of automation. In, in terms of, you know, will there still be a need to automate analysis because maybe you don't need to even need to do the experiments in the first place. I, my, my strong suspicion is that's not what will happen. It may well be that AI allows you to design drugs more quickly and iterate less cycles and things like this. Does that mean we'll have less LCMSs, less NMRs and less samples to analyze? No, I think it just means we'll do more projects at the same time. It's, absolutely, it's I absolutely agree. That's right. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think we'll have less drugs, more, we'll have more drugs, more treatments. And, yes. and this is what excites me about it, right? We'll, we'll get there quicker and we'll get there more times and we will have more options. Uh, and we're reducing the time and we're reducing the cost, I think, of, of getting there, which for me is very... It's, it's very it's very exciting. I'm interested in that concept as well that obviously you're mentioning. We talk about AI and we kind of think machine learning, but it's more more to AI than that. There are expert systems, heuristics, etc., that we have used for a very long time. And and the, the thought that one can be the input to the other is also very interesting. I mean, in a way, in a way, it's the difference between Deep Blue playing Gary Kasparov and AlphaFold. Who, which cannot play against any humans now, right? But without all those games that were played before Alpha Fold will not exist. Whilst Deep Blue was able to play without having ever seen a previous game just by yes. following all all those rules engines. So okay, we're automating. We, we there is value in automating. We have do's and don'ts. We're gonna automate our laboratory as much as possible in the analytical chemistry part. Uh, I'm an analytical chemist. Chemist Gary, should I be worried about my job? That's a is a good question. It's it's maybe always a, a thing that's there, right, with automation, particularly if maybe you're the expert and you know now things are being done by a computer. Um, but yeah, because you know I, if you come to me with an automation system, I may not give you the budget since I'm the one who decides that where, yeah, where yeah. I'm going to invest my money. <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, I think what I would say is this: if your aim in your in your job is to do lots of repetitive tasks and do it again and again and again and you're happy with that, then perhaps you would be worried, right? But I suspect that's not most people's aims. Actually, what most people, they see those things as the tedious part of the job and they want to develop new methodologies and they 
um, want to spend more time doing those more research-based activities, I, I think overall. So, I mean, I think the way I've always seen it is that it frees up time to do those things. So, yeah, if you want a, a better quality job, if you like, then you certainly shouldn't be worried about automation. That That's my feeling, uh, at least. Yeah, I use it as a tool to help you, I think is the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, I think Nikki mentioned exactly the same in our previous talk, which was uh, free up scientist time to do interesting stuff instead yes. of repetitive repetitive tasks. And I think we're, we're probably, we've we've talked long enough, Gary, I have one final question, I think, and then we can let our audience go. Um, so thinking of the Messelab products, um, and obviously we're putting more and more focus on automation, you know, so what automation components do you like best from what we currently do? And other automation well, components are available, of course. But yes, yes, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so that, I mean, the, the ones I'm bound to mention are probably the ones that I've worked with my, myself mostly recently. So I've spent a lot of time over the last year or so working with uh, LCMS analyses mm -hmm. and our tools to do that. Perhaps in the area of purification, the various aspects of purification, sample quality, but even into things like uh, screening. Um, affinity screening and things like that. Obviously, there's lots of commonality between all of these kind of an analyses. Yeah, and I, yeah, I mean, that's been kind of fun working with some of those. And I think that there's, there's a nice suite of tools there for, for doing a set of related analyses. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, perhaps one other one to mention, again, as I say, I'm probably mentioning the ones that I've been particularly involved in and, and, and other ones exist, you, you said before, but going right back maybe to where we started about um, automating simple NMR analyses for release. And we have a product for the analysis of heparin um, based on proton NMR. And yeah, maybe as I say, you know, where we started about analyzing carbon spectra in that case, it was moving the, the tedium of doing that many, many, many times. And that's, I think, a, kind of a, ni a nice one as well in that it, it takes an analysis. It may be all the things we spoke about where there's a recipe, in this case, a pharmacopoeia recipe. It does all the things that it needs to do in there, produces a nice report and so on. And yeah, that's, uh, as I say, it's maybe taking us full circle in terms of where we started talking today. And, you know, there is nothing wrong with that. It's good to look back and to to realize that some things have followed you your whole life, right? And that yeah. there, is a, there is a little bit there is a little bit of a stability there. Um, thank you very much, Gary. I think it's, it's been fascinating. Uh, you know, some of my takeaways are, of course, fix the process before you automate it. I really like that. And I also like the don't expect 100% because humans, believe it or not, don't produce it. So those, I yeah. think, are very... Very important pearls of wisdom, and I think it's fascinating to hear about how you managed to put at Eli Lilly, for example, hundreds of thousands of samples through a process that delivered value and which maybe was practically untractable before. So, you know, automation is, I think, a great opportunity to work better and to achieve more. Um, I think it's something that obviously we encourage our users to to look at and to think about. And there, uh, there are lots of materials about automation in the MesaLab website. We have a lot of automation products, so I would encourage everyone to go and take a look at that and to join us for the next talk on, of the series, which will be released in a few weeks. I think it's number three. 
And I believe it will be John Hollerton from GSK who will be talking to us, but we will confirm that later. Gary, it's been a pleasure talking to you as always. Uh, thank you very much. And and maybe I would just mention that hopefully by automating more, one also gets a bit more time to practice the guitar and singing, uh, <laughs> you know, so so that the master band can continue to successfully <laughs> su successfully progress in his, in his adventure. Uh, thank you very much. Well, no, thank you very much as well. You can find all Mestrecast episodes at iVox, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And you can, of course, follow us in our Mestrelab media channels on LinkedIn, X, Instagram, Facebook, etc. So please follow us, uh, share us, and we look forward to seeing you attending future episodes.